Welcome to the Fret Dojo Podcast, the place where pro guitar players share their secrets. Visit www.fretdojo.com to access online courses and free resources to take your guitar playing to the next level. Hello and welcome to the Fret Dojo Podcast. My name is Greg O'Rourke. And I'm Vin Amarando. And we're the instructors at Fret Dojo. And today we have a very special guest, the fabulous Beth Marlis. Welcome to the show, Beth. Welcome, Beth. Hey. Excited thank you, guys. You. Oh, me too. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Excited. Fantastic. Now, so I just thought we'd kick off today by filling uh, our audience in as to um, Beth's accomplishments over her career. So Beth holds a bachelor's degree in music from UC Santa Cruz and a master's degree in music from the University of Southern California in uh, studio and jazz guitar performance. Uh, Beth was also an honors graduate of the Musicians Institute guitar program GIT in 1986. Uh, Beth co-authored two massively successful instructional books and DVDs, Guitar Soloing and Advanced Guitar Soloing, uh, published by Hal Leonard and MI Press, and has held numerous masterclasses and workshops across the US and Japan most recently at the California Jazz Guitar Conservatory in Berkeley, California. Uh, Beth's performed and toured the US, Europe and Canada with a wide range of artists, including Harold Land, Brownie McGee, Helen Reddy, Louis Belson and many others. And uh, Beth's also composed over a dozen, dozen film scores. That's quite interesting. And uh, Beth's taught thousands of guitar students as an MI instructor since 1987, specializing in jazz and funk. And she became vice president of the Musicians Institute in 2010. So Beth's also heavily involved in nonprofits and is the executive director of the Musicians Foundation, which provides educational opportunities for contemporary music students. So in addition, she maintains an active schedule as an LA freelance guitarist. So welcome, Beth. Fantastic to have you on the show. But firstly, I want to take a bit of a tangent. I want to talk about Aikido. So given that we're a, uh, a um, enough of all this jazz guitar stuff for a moment, because uh, uh, we saw in your bio that you're, uh, given, given that this is a fret dojo, you know, this kind of Japanese themed set that we have going on here, I thought that would be a nice talking point. So you, you're a, you're a, uh, uh, you have a, um, uh, an interest in Aikido, I believe. Oh, that, you know, enough of this jazz guitar stuff, right? I love how we start this podcast. We're done with that. Um, <laughs> great question, and um, I, I will uh, do my best to answer it, but um, I will go back and, and roll the, the um, tape back, not that it's terribly uh, important, but um, I've actually been teaching at GIT since 1987, not 97, so, oh, what's 10 years, or jazz guitar <laughs> between friends, doesn't really matter, so we'll talk about Aikido. Um, which I love. I, I do have a, a great interest in that. And of course, the word dojo is very near and dear to my heart. So I, I almost want to interview you to ask you why you, you made the choice, <laughs> you know, but I can understand why, because it really, um, you know, any kind of dojo is going to be about serious practice and, you know, uh, transformation and, uh, you know, implies a lot of, uh, kind of major pursuits, for lack of a better word, uh, you know, it's a serious thing. So um, for me, my Aikido career actually started back in the 70s uh, I, uh, when I was in college. So I studied it and practiced it and taught for about 15 years 
And um, for me, the reason that I don't still practice it is that I had a little injury at one point and, uh, you know, I couldn't reconcile that with being able to play the guitar and without getting too um, into the weeds with it. I actually had an injury that was right here, which is the spot on my shoulder where your guitar strap hangs. Oh. And I sort of had to face this choice of, am I going to be doing martial arts or be a musician? And so I, I decided to choose that um, I should be a musician. And I retired from teaching. Um, maybe it was even 20 years that I practiced. I don't know. But it's not really the number that counts as much as the impact on my philosophy and DNA and about um, arduous practice, about staying focused, about centering, about all kinds of aspects that come from many of the martial arts that are really a great compliment to being a musician, apart from injuring your shoulder, which is not complimentary. Um, so much of the practice of martial arts, you know, breathing, awareness of time and space and fluidity are, are very much, you know, about harmony. And so I don't need to make that connection any more obvious. Um, it's uh, very uh, much a part of my music, even though I don't, you know, put on the uh, a black belt or anything anymore and go to a, go to the dojo it's still in, in me and so um i know there's some you know other uh music and jazz guitar uh sites and teachers that you term and and it actually always uh you know makes me feel um kind of um, pleased for lack of a better word you know it's like that's great because you get it and over the years i've met a lot of people who were karate students or taekwondo or tai chi or whatever it is who are also musicians and you know every single time you know we see eye to eye on how it really is one of the best compliments to being a, a guitar player and being a musician you know possible so yeah i'm happy to be here in the dojo again um <laughs> but I, and I, yeah yeah that's a great question but i don't know maybe we'll talk about guitar too if, if yeah, yeah, I think we should. Yeah, <laughs> I really, I really resonate with um, what you're saying, though. I've, I've, I found I sort of chose this kind of line for the branding because I found for me, jazz guitar was a real path of, you know, challenge and mastery. You, you know, like, like uh, it, jazz is a is almost like a martial art in a way. It's I know it doesn't look like it on the surface, but in terms of the the uh, study you need, the dedication, the uh, mindfulness. You know, uh, really, the, the the way you can really make fantastic improvised music in the moment is really bringing your mind to that single point of focus, you, you know, like where you're not sort of worried about what the audience is thinking or you're not worried about the mistakes you made in the past or whatever. But that's really where the magic happens in jazz. So it's a bit of a reminder for me, I guess. Good. Well, thank you for reminding me. <laughs> makes for better podcasts, too. But it is, you know, you're absolutely right. It's consistency. It's climbing the mountain even if it's one, you know, tiny grain of sand per day of working, you know, uh, to evolve, being willing, you know, it, it, I think of this in music all the time, being willing to take risks and to um, be present and not carry baggage, you know, mm. and that's a very natural thing, I think, as musicians, you know, that's, that's something that we can talk about maybe at a later point about things that hang you up, you know, that get in the way that, uh, that, uh, I think have that same sort of uh, single-mindedness that you talk about. So it's a it's a real um, it's a real advantage. I think that it came from that as a teacher. It helped me to be a better guitar teacher as well because I taught martial arts, and so 
um, somehow that really, I feel, I can't quantify it really, but I do feel like it made me a much better teacher as well, which was interesting, you know, over the period of time that, that I, I did both. And sometimes I was doing both at the same time. So it felt very fluid, um, the way that I would approach it. And I think I had a reputation in my early GIT teaching years of being a really hard teacher. And <laughs> like the, really the, you, just, you brought the bamboo stick out, was it? <laughs> something like that, you know, that it was very tough and that I was really demanding of my students. And, you know, I could say I'm considerably so much, you know, easier and nicer. And um, not that I was really, you know, tough without reason, but I think that, that uh, I, I did come into it in my early days of teaching because of teaching martial arts, that it, it really, the expectation level was really high, you know, in a certain sort of way. So um, that's an interesting evolution too. But yeah, it's definitely, you know, no one, I don't think of all the interviews I've ever done, no one's ever asked me about Aikido, much less the first thing. So uh, kudos to you, Greg. <laughs> and thanks for reading no my bio. So, so appreciate that. That's great. All right. Well, um, okay. Well, enough of enough of Aikido martial arts, but but stay tuned, guys, because uh, Beth's going to be really sharing some key insights into uh, how to improve your jazz guitar playing uh, uh, when we get into the meat of the interview a bit later on. So, but let's get started though with uh, your journey with music and jazz guitar. You know, uh, why did you pick up jazz guitar? Where did it all start for you, and 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 how did things evolve from there? Um. I you know, as a kid, I think in my generation, a lot of uh, kids could point to the Beatles and I, I was one of those kids for sure. So I um, I started out musically around five or six years old playing violin and that just seems so horribly uncool to be a violin player that by the time I was 10, I was begging my, my mom particularly, get me a guitar, please, you gotta get me a guitar. And it worked and I got a guitar and I, got lessons and I hated the lessons so much. I really hated them. And I was a, you know, like rebel kid immediately because, and in those days, you know, Jimi Hendrix was kind of appearing and, you know, there was things going on. It was like, you know, not what I wanted to learn from my teacher. I didn't want to learn America the Beautiful and um, folk songs and, and she made me sing. So I took my very first guitar and it has no connection to Aikido or anything like that. So don't infer any wild uh, theories about it. I took my first guitar and I smashed it against the side <laughs> of the house. <laughs> I smashed it. So I guess I had a thing for like, you know, I don't know, weaponry or whatever, but I, but maybe it was a Jimi Hendrix moment. And I just thought, you know what, I hate this. I'm not gonna do it. And I wanna be cool and I wanna play the guitar. And that was my motivating factor. Um, but luckily for me, uh, down the, the line, a few maybe months or a year later or something, I got another guitar. I got an electric guitar that was a hand-me-down from a, a relative, a Hagstrom electric with 85 buttons on it. And uh, I was just thrilled. I got a little amp and I had a little band with my neighborhood kids and we were hippies and we had a good time. We played rock and roll and I learned all kinds of Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple and, and all that stuff and would bring my guitar to school uh like in eighth grade ninth grade you know as i was a little older every single day i was one of those kids i mean i couldn't stop you know playing it so it would come with me to school anyhow uh that's where it started and eventually and not soon enough <laughs> i uh went off to college and um you know I, I, by the time i went to college i had already been turned on to 
to Pat Martino and George Benson and uh, Jim Hall, even like in high school, uh, I was sort of, again, a rebel. All my friends loved rock and I started listening in, to jazz and I had friends that played jazz and um, got a degree in music. I went to college and it was sort of a jazz degree, which in those days, believe it or not, there were no grades where I went to school. There were no really not even really clear majors in a way. So my my music degree was in uh, Latin jazz, Indonesian gamelan, and electronic music. So wow. it was pretty eclectic and, and unique. So um, that uh, was an interesting musical upbringing, a very, you know, I mean, I got to perform with John Cage at one point even. Um, very different than your average, you know, kid that goes to music college. So it was a, a little unusual. I got to do some touring. I did an album in the 80s, played bluegrass and jazz, um, new acoustic music, which was great, had, you know, huge audiences I was playing for and had this moment where I was on stage in front of, I don't know if I get this, you know, my memory a little fuzzy on this, if it was 10,000 or 30,000 people, I don't know, in the audience, an enormous, enormous festival. And I had this realization once the set was over and it was a success and it was great. But I thought, you know what? I don't even know all the notes on the fretboard. I don't even know what I'm doing. I know my parts. And we got standing ovations like I nailed it. The band nailed it. And I knew my parts. And I thought, I got to fix this immediately. And it, all the eclecticism was cool, the gamelan and whatever. But the reality was is that I, I needed to go to that school GIT in LA uh, and, and, and fix it. So I, uh, I did, and then I never mm. left. <laughs> wow. So, I, wow. so I went there in 1985 um, and um, uh, they hired me as an instructor fairly soon after I graduated, which I felt amazed that, you know, I was able to be hired and I made the promise to myself it would only be a year. I'll just do this for a year because I want to be a session player. I want to tour. I don't want to be like teaching, you know, I don't want to do that. But um, 36 years later, I'm still there. And that year, <laughs> that's a very long year. It's been a, great, it's been a really good year. It's been a great year. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, uh, I, I do think, you know, there is that, that little thread of Aikido again, because I, I think through Aikido, I learned that I love to teach and through, you know, that background, which I had before I started teaching at GIT, I realized I love to teach in spite of my uh, ambitions to be, a, you know, a jazz star or a session musician or whatever. I really loved to do it. So, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, so that just continued to expand. And, you know, in 36 years, you can imagine the trouble I got myself into running programs and writing curriculum and uh, wearing a lot of hats. Uh, and nonprofit hats, like you've mentioned, and so on and so forth. And all along the way, I kept playing uh, as a kind of a, I'll call it mercenary. That's not a very polite word, I suppose. Mercenary. But, you know, I was a, a side man, you know, I would just do whatever. I could play, I like to think I could play any style. I would do country gigs, I'd do rock gigs, I'd do jazz gigs. Uh, and um, And I was a good reader, so I could play. I did a lot of like um, awards shows, things like in the pit orchestra. So, you know, I could just play. And um, and I attribute that ability to read, of course, to going to GIT. And that time going to that school was certainly amazing as a student because I was surrounded by Joe Pass and uh, 
Joe DiOrio and, you know, fusion guys, uh, you know, like, of course, Scott Henderson and Larry Carlton and, you know, Pat Martino, and they'd all come around. And it was a, just an incredible foundation. The thing I'd been missing in my life before was like, there it was. And I was just in this center of the guitar universe, or the, it seemed to me that way. And that's, you know, a big part of why I never wanted to leave. Like, why would you leave that? <laughs> it was what great. What an amazing so that, experience. That was very, very, very uh, special. Um, and in my time running the department, I became the department chair of GIT. Um, again, one of those situations where it's like, you know, I couldn't believe they said yes, we'd like you to do it. But um, I really had this imprint as a student of how every day was amazing. The candy store was off the hook, so to speak. So when I ran the department, I tried to replicate that experience too. So I would bring in every imaginable visiting artist and clinician and concerts and seminars and just create this environment that nobody, you know, could make. Like the recipe, you know, just didn't exist anywhere else in the world. So I was very lucky during that period of time to be able to be in the center of that and be surrounded by the very best, the very best, you know. So I, I think that that, uh, shaped me in ways that I can, can't even begin to talk about on a podcast, but uh, very lucky. That's my very long answer to your very short question about how did you come up? Um, that's really the thing that, that, that made me. And my musical mentor, number one during that time was Joe DiOrio. He really was sort of my musical, musical father. Um, I'll just tie this up by saying my education didn't end with being at GIT. I also, as you've mentioned, got a master's degree at USC. Uh, and con and I continue studying to this day, of course, it's that, you know, we're always student mentality. Uh, that's really important um, to me. So that's, that's, you know, my foundational training came from there. And then, you know, other things we can talk about as far as the, the people try to emulate or who I've studied, you know, on my own since then, um, since I had that blueprint from GIT. Um, West Coast is very different than East Coast. You know, there may be somebody who came up through Berkeley, similarly to me coming up through GIT and MI, uh, but even geographically, you know, it's a very different world and the kinds of players that are in New York or Boston versus LA. So, you know, I also sort of really see myself as you know, a West Coast guitar player for whatever that's worth. I'm not sure what that means, but yeah yeah i've got a question for you beth um just you know in that time where you were sort of right like like a kid in the canning store the, these amazing players surrounding you at git what what were some of the biggest takeaways that you got from your conversations with them or playing with them or like what what was what were some of these sort of key points that you um, have really impacted your playing and study of jazz, we're, we're having, hang, uh, ha having hung around these guys? You know, there's a very almost nuts and bolts thing um, that every GIT student learns when you're there. And um, two things. One is how to practice. And um, Howard Roberts being the founder of GIT, you know, he was such a a tremendous studio musician and quick study um, and always advocated getting things off the page. Uh, so when you would go to school, since he founded the school, you know, based on his many 
uh, years of seminars before he actually founded the official school GIT in 1977. His teaching method, one of them was um, time frames, that when you practice, it's really important that you break information into small digestible bits of maybe no more than 10 minutes. So that was a new one on me. When I went to school, you know, we had timers. You, when you practice, you practice 10 minutes, timer goes off, you stop, dead stop, and then you take a one minute break. And the science, or I should say maybe the uh, experience based on having done this, I think, you know, from Howard and then all the students and faculty for years afterwards is that you really are at your top functionality in that 10 minute time frame. Anything as, you know, human brain and systems, you know, go on more than 10 minutes, it, it's just like you start to decay. Uh, your ability to retain information and focus goes down after 10 minutes. So that was a very different and interesting way of approaching, you know, putting more and more material into a shorter and shorter time frame. Of course, as you get to be a better player, you do it naturally. You know, playing a, you know, harmonic minor scale might have, in the, you know, in the beginning taken you 20 minutes to figure out how to do it. And, and you know, now you can just do it in five seconds. Uh, similarly, obviously, as you, you get more information and more skilled, not only physically, but also mentally, you can, you can accomplish more in a shorter period of time. And that really is something Howard Roberts attributed, you know, uh, as, a, as a part of his success, other than the fact that he was incredibly talented and a lot of other things. But that was a very different thing, unique to GIT, I think, maybe, you know. Um, so that was a, a worthwhile thing. Now, I don't still do that. I'm going to be the first to fess up, <laughs> but I, I do try to, um, from time to time, I do try to make myself adhere to some version of that, you know, of when I notice, you know, that I start to kind of slightly drift, you know, to be kind of um, assiduous with myself about it. You were saying, sorry. Yeah, yeah, it's off. it's just, uh, no, no, it's interesting you mentioned that uh, um, I remember, uh, several years ago, I did a course that impacted me quite a lot. It's a, I think it's still a free course. It's called Learning How to Learn. It's an online one on Coursera. And they were talking about short-term memory versus long-term memory in that course. And they, they likened short-term memory to like a, kind of like a blackboard that's not a very good one. <laughs> and it's only got limited spots. It's only got like these four little panels on it. And so if you uh, overload that short-term memory, you don't get any advantage. You actually need time to allow that short-term memory, that information you're presenting to filter through to your long-term memory, where that's where the real retention happens. But if you never give yourself a break like that, and that's such a simple idea, but such a powerful one, it's actually leveraging the way the mind naturally works when it's uh, attempting to acquire and assimilate information. I mean, I think that's very interesting. And I, and I think as musicians, we want to operate at our peak performance level, of course, because what we're asking ourselves to do specifically, and particularly in jazz is very high level, you know, and um, maybe that sort of behavior to take something from short term to long term memory. Another thing that I remember as sort of a, um, a saying at the school in the early days was 21 to 30 days, 21 to 30 days. That's how long it takes for you to be able to ingrain, you know, a new lick or a piece of information so that it goes into your long-term memory and it's available for you to pull out, you know, as needed. Um, and that's a flies in the face with so many aspects of what, you know, 
we encounter when people are trying to learn now with the overload of information of more is better of the FOMO of like, you know, I've got to collect, I've got to be this sort of hoarder of information when in reality, uh, it probably really, well, it's like having a lot of tools and no blueprint. <laughs> it's like, you, it's not going to help you to keep acquiring at a certain point, you, you realize that you have to really kind of cut the, uh, the distractions away. And that focus we talked about in terms of martial arts and how to memorize or how to learn or how to ingrain, um, there is really something to it. And maybe the recipe is different for different people. You know, So for me, I can't see myself with the egg timer in 10 minutes or my iPhone and putting it on 10 minutes and making myself stop. But, um, but I, do, I do think that that's, that is a part of you know, my practicing in the way that I, I go about taking in information and teaching it to a certain extent and putting you know, different topics in manageable boxes, as it were, rather than overwhelming, like throwing, if I'm a teacher, my job is not to throw information at someone endlessly, you know, because teaching like this podcast, is, uh, you know, it's conversational, clearly, and it has ebbs and flows. And there's natural spaces where you can just take in what someone just said to you. I mean, someone, you know, the old cliche of someone that never stops talking. I mean, you just tune it out. And I think we do that unwittingly to ourselves as musicians when we get addicted to uh, information gathering, you know, and, and I, I confess to having out of frame here on my desk, a pile of books, you know, that Don't I never all. touch. We all do. <laughs> I mean, I'm talking about novels, obviously, I'm talking about, you know, talking about music books and instructional books, and they're full of wisdom and brilliance. But music isn't learned necessarily through them. Of course, you know, it's through, it's through the recordings. It's through music, it's through playing with other people, it's language, it's vocabulary, all, the, the, all of the metaphors that you know, your other guests have used, I'm sure, about how to acquire language and, and how to speak. Um, you know, it's the cliche of, you know, there poet, there's poetry, there's dance, there's art, there's music, there's theater, um, sonnets about falling in love, to use the most ridiculous uh, 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 metaphor, but you know, you don't know what love is if you don't do it, if you don't, exactly. if you don't experience it, it's experiential. And the same thing with music. It is absolutely an experiential, um, conversational, you know, language. And uh, so books are great and, you know, can help. But I think the forest for the trees, you know, a lot of people confuse getting online information, internet information, books, this and that. Um, and all the tools they can possibly stuff in their pocket and then they're a little lost and you know what happens here in this podcast and in other communities is great because i think it helps to steer people back mm. to the um you know the how should i say being receptive to um you know uh, other people's ideas and not being kind of locked into accumulation of knowledge you have to you have to put it to the test. You have to, you know, play music with other people. You have to, um, you know, not just be in a singular conversation with yourself. So you have to connect. There's a, a, a really strong need for uh, being able to be a part of a community and to have conversations and to, um, you know, not just only hear yourself 
because you're home practicing, you know, in your bedroom. So that was a very long answer. But um, anyway, no, no, it's, back it's, to GIT. It's, <laughs> what did I look No, just, what uh, I just before we move on, there, there, there was some amazing points covered there because that whole thing about information, it's a unique thing of this age, isn't it? Because we're in the information explosion stage. Like there's billions of extra hours uploaded to YouTube every day of some, and, and I'm sure there's amazing information out there, but that's the problem, isn't it? Information doesn't actually, but in and of itself, you actually need the the actual structure around the information for it to make sense. Yeah. Like, like if you just sort of try one thing over here, one thing over here, you need someone like yourself, Beth, to tie it all together. So, so that, the, so that you, you know what the pathway is, the sequence rather than the actual um, uh, just the, the sort of the, the, the whole spread of information. But, but let, let's talk about that. Like when you're teaching, what, what's some of the, what's some of the core elements you find are really important to cover in terms of the bases covered when you're teaching jazz? Uh, do, do you spend a lot of time on improvising or on singing or, or on, you know, rhythm training? Like what's, what's some of those core elements that you, that you tend to focus on? I, I think that those are, that's a great question. And, you know, thanks for uh, underlining the value of having a, a good teacher, by the way, um, I'll talk about what I do. I do think, you know, having a good teacher uh, it's really important so that they sort of set you up on the raft, you know, with what you need, and then they kind of push you out so you swim. Um, and then you, you enter into the world of, you know, what excites you and what the sounds, you know, and the players that you love and the phrases and the ideas and the music that you love, um, that's what a good teacher does. And they help you identify what that is. What draws you to the music? That's the most essential basic thing is why are you doing this? Um, and therefore, you know, knowing that you have a passion or something that draws you in, something that makes it worth it to do the work in order to become free enough to actually play uh, and put in the time and, you know, be honest with yourself and be willing to grow, you got to find, like, why do I love this? So I think in the very beginning with students, I... I want to know, like, what's their motivation, you know, who motivates them? And then uh, what kind of commitment are you willing to make? And that should ideally change the longer you play. Um, you know, are you practicing an hour every day? Are you practicing more? Are you practicing every other day or whatever? A lot of these factors uh, determine outcome, obviously, and the kind of student you are. And um, what are the essential things? Number one is to figure out a practice schedule. That's actually the first thing I ask a student on the very first day, although I don't really teach private lessons anymore, but I used to, used to always ask, like, essentially, how much skin in the game do you have? How much time are you going to put into this? Especially if they're a GIT student, well, that should be, the answer should be, you know, hours and hours and hours, but we're all unique and, you know, whatever your commitments in life uh, and time are, or unique to you, but that's a question you never stop asking from day one. What am I going to practice? Um, so I think putting a structure in place, like how many days am I going to practice? How many hours? So forth. I think it's very important. So then you're not always asking yourself or feeling guilty about it. Like, oh, I didn't practice. Just make an agreement with yourself. I'm doing this much. And then you can change it later. But that's a very simple sort of, you know, if you're an athlete, you know what your training schedule is. So that's a very simple thing. Um, I, I think that it's important also to cover, obviously, fretboard knowledge, just basics like, you know, my 
upbringing at GIT was the caged system, so five patterns, so that you would learn five patterns of everything. Uh, so all scales, all arpeggios, all chord voicings, all sequences, um, you'd learn five patterns of everything all over the neck and you'd learn everything in one place. So it's the vertical and the horizontal that you need to know that. Uh, you need to know one thing everywhere and you need to know everything in one place, very simply said. Uh, but that doesn't take five minutes. <laughs> it takes a while, you know, for a, for a student to, maybe that's the ticket, the key to the door of being an intermediate player, I suppose. It's like, once you know that, um, you never stop working on it. You never stop getting better at it and knowing it deeper. Like if you're playing an arpeggio, do you know all the notes in it as you're playing? Do you know that's a C sharp? You know, can you multitask? Can you, you know, this is a simple way to practice, but can you double and triple your money? I mean, like if you're playing an arpeggio, can you actually sing the note mm. and actually say C sharp, you know, and actually, you know, say it and sing it and know it in your fingers. And can you, you know, layer things so that you're actually able to multitask and learn faster, you know, but that these are just kind of like, skeletal you know pieces of information that you need you need to do the work that's pretty simple so that's a basic um the other basic thing then not that it's sequential at the same time ideally is you want to be learning ideas i alluded to it before ideas that you love copy phrases that you love copy sounds that you love even if it's just a certain chord voicing it's like what makes you want to have it you know i have a lot of things where it's like i hear it's like i gotta have that you know, as a student, you should hopefully have things that you hear, that you listen, that you do listening. You do actually listen. <laughs> a lot of students don't actually listen. Listen to, to things. And then uh, you don't have to sit down and transcribe it on the spot, but either try to learn it by ear or, you know, try to transcribe it or write it or find a transcription and read it. I, I mentioned before, I'm a big reader. I love to read. I really do. Um, one of my favorite, speaking of the internet, websites is SoundSlice. I, every day as a part of my practice, go on there and sight read for at least five to 10 minutes every day. And I'm getting like Hank Mobley, or I'm getting Sonny Stitt or Sonny Rollins, or I'm getting all this stuff and I'm just able to read it. And it's like, it goes in, you know? So I'm putting ideas and phrases that I love into my playing. And that's one way certainly to do it. For me, that's very seamless. So you mentioned singing, I mentioned singing. I think singing away from your instrument is important. How many sax players do you know that are just sweet, but do be, you know, away from their horn? Why aren't we doing that as guitar players or if we're stuck in traffic? Why aren't we singing solos? You know, it's just these sort of artificial barriers that are, you know, just knock them over. Um, I, I remember in my going back to the nostalgic, you know, GIT conversation, Joe Pass saying, learn melodies. You know, you want to learn how to play jazz guitar, learn melodies. They're perfect, you know, they're perfect. They're perfect solos. Melodies are like an improvised solo, you know, polished up to a fine shine. And I think that there was uh, a lot, you know, that's absolutely right about that, is learn songs. But even if you only learn four bars, you know, what is it that makes that melody, you know, strong? What is it about it? So I think that that's a really important part of it too. Um, basics, I'm a huge, fan of um 
taking taking chords like just a singular chord and it comes from my uh, studies with Jimmy Weibel, who's a big influence for me, um, and breaking it into pieces. It's not like a, you know, a, a, a single, ugh, you know, what do they call them? Like Jimmy Bruno would say a grip or whatever, like as in this thing, you know, it's meant to be not just arpeggiated like a finger stylus, but like take two notes out of it at a time, deconstruct it. What's inside of it? There's so much music inside of just even one chord it continues to, you know, like blow open my mind, you know, particularly the counterpoint, because I've been studying a lot of, of that the last few years is contrapuntal, two lines going at once and how they live within chords that we just play that are, you know, fairly simple in a way. Um, in other words, there's a lot in there, even when you're learning at a fairly basic or in, intermediate level, instead of just sort of just, yeah, playing it. It's like, you have permission, take your hammer and break it into pieces and see what you can get out of it, you know? Because that's where the good stuff is, I think. Certainly, um, the the basics are the basics and they can't really be argued with. You can't lie to yourself. You, you have to be honest and you have to go back what you talked about or what you asked about, Greg, about what's the important stuff is, it's the important stuff for everyone. You know, these things, basic rhythm exercises, basic reading, basic theory, ear training, all of these things that are building blocks, but they do you they do you no good if you're not willing to be objective with yourself and call your own bluff. Mm. And I'm always going back and fixing stuff. I've been playing more than 50 years, which is quite a thing to say. And I'm still like, oh, the way I pick that's ridiculous. Why have I been picking something? you know, the, the wrong way for 10 years. It's not really wrong, but why was I doing it? Just because it was a habit, you know, or, or other things in my playing that I'm always going back to, to recalibrate it and fix it. I'll just give you my last confession since I'm confessing all kinds of things about my, what I do and don't do, <laughs> is for probably 20 years I didn't practice. I taught. Interesting. Boy, you know, hard to put this on, you know, in a recording somewhere, but it's true. I taught. And I did gigs. And so if I practiced, practiced, it was for the gig. Talk about a pitfall. I'm a pro. You know, I mentioned being a mercenary sideman. It's like, you know, I don't need to get, I don't need to practice and I don't, and I don't need to ever rehearse. I just show up to the, I was like off the charts, you know, like irredeemable <laughs> almost about it. And because, you know, I teach, well, I'll work on the stuff I'm going to teach for tomorrow and the gig I'm playing tonight, but you know, I didn't have time. I just, that was my excuse. And I run a program and I'm doing this and I don't have time. Boy, if I had had those 20 years back, if I was doing then what I do now, I mean, granted, I put in about four hours a day. I shed about three to four hours, minimum three every day. Um, I love every day I learn something new. That's the opposite of what I did for 20 years. I mean, I was learning this stuff for the gig, but what a waste so so kids learn <laughs> learn from me don't do what i did even if you're a professional don't do it <laughs> it's so interesting you say that I, I remember i studied with this amazing player uh, don andrews when i was very young uh, i used to go to the conservatorium on the central coast and 
and uh, study with Don. We used to play in a group together. He was a fantastic jazz player. And when he pulled out and was playing his jazz lines or whatever at a concert, it was so impressive. But I remember often walking past his office, you know, just when he was like by himself in there. I didn't interrupt. And do you know what he was doing? He was like doing the C major scale, you know, like the really basic things. But then he'd come out and play these amazing lines. So, so you know, that there's an example of, you know, uh the fundamentals are important no matter what stage you are you know it's uh to, to keep keep things in shape but um that, that's it yeah, yeah. uh yeah the, i know vin you've been very quiet and patient i'm sure well, you're, you're i am a- soaking in to... all this wisdom i'm happy to stay quiet with all this coming in but <laughs> I'll, I'll i'll let you answer uh, ask some questions soon vin but i, I just got one more that i want to ask on, on this point because you mentioned like um you know one of the pitfalls but uh, given that you've taught so many thousands of students over the years, Beth, uh, something that comes to mind for me to ask you is what on the flip side, we've talked about what what people need to focus on in their in their practice sessions and and in their playing. But what's some of the biggest mistakes where you where you sort of see these students come in and you go, oh, they're doing that mistake again. And you just keep seeing these uh, uh, mistakes people are making over and over, either in their practice session or in their mindset or approach. Uh, could you share about your observations there? What are the biggest mistakes you see? I think there's probably like the top four. Number one, don't practice non-musical exercises. And I say that just like the kids don't do what I do. Because I used to do that. Like my first touch on the guitar in the morning used to be chromatic exercises. And that's good. You know, that's good if you're watching TV or something or looking at your computer. But um, don't waste too much time with that. You know, work on musical ideas. That's number one. Number two is sort of that hoarder system uh, syndrome thing, you know, collecting information for its own sake. Like, oh, did you see that thing that... Uh, you know, Jonathan Kreisberg played it, oh, Peter Bernstein, and, and you know, and then you then you get nothing done. Um, I think the third the third one is judging yourself. That's a big mistake. Um, worrying about are you good enough? Um, you know, music is supposed to be fun. It's supposed to bring happiness and joy, um, and it's really uh, a waste of time to not have that feeling about it. Stop beating yourself up. But but it's also a huge mistake to do that to, to our fellow players, our community. What a mistake, what a waste of time that is. I mean, really, am I good enough? Are you good enough? Nobody cares, really, at the end of the day. So I think that's a, that's a big pitfall. And then the other thing, the fourth one is don't practice what you're already good at. I mean, keep it polished up, yes. There are pieces I play every single day, like some, um, again, Jimmy Weibel, because it's really challenging and I love it. I'll play these pieces every single day, no matter what. Just like I'll do my scales and arpeggios and my warm-ups and all that stuff, you know, and sequences and the licks that I'm learning. And I do them every single day because I want to get smoother and better at it. <clears throat> Pardon me. But if, <clears throat> if you're doing that to the extent that you're not growing it's kind of like that you know i'm a pro i only work on the stuff for the gig if you're only doing the things that you're good at um you got a problem as far as i'm concerned and also it means you're not being challenged because if you go out on a gig or if you go to a jam session or you just play with your buddy and they kick your butt thankfully hopefully you play with people that are better than you you know what to work on it's instant real world feedback and um great 
I love it, even though it hurts sometimes, I love knowing what I have to fix. It's like that pointed it out to me right then and there. So I think if you only practice what you're good at, it's that thing I alluded to before about being honest with yourself. Um, what a mistake. Don't just go like, ding. oh, you got that note always comes out badly. Oh, who cares? I'll skip it. I'll just keep going. No, you, you need to fix that. And it's pretty plain as day. And so that's a huge mistake. You give yourself a pass, whether it's a note or it's the fact that you can't play at a certain tempo or a certain progression or whatever. There's 10,000 things. And the, and the truth of it is, on the flip side, be kind to yourself because you're not going to learn everything. That's not going to happen. And it's perfectly fine. <laughs> you don't have to learn it all. Uh, but that's what I see anyway, is what the, big, the four big time wasters are um you know i'm sure that there's more i don't know but those are the four i know i find um uh give, given this sort of online teaching role that i've got now I, i've had to record myself an awful lot and uh and that keeps you very honest because i think sometimes we sort of think something's going really well but then you look back on it and you know you know what like there's a lot of things that maybe I was ignoring or not even um, sort of worrying about that are actually a bit of a bit of an issue there. So, so I find that that's a nice mirror to put to yourself often uh, recording yourself, listening back, sometimes listening back right after the session, you know, can give you an interesting perception. So maybe give it a few days, listen back again. And, uh, and that, that can really give you some clear pointers on where to improve. I find. I think it's, it's, you know, doesn't lie. And it is, I, I like what you just said about just giving it a little buffer, because if I listen back to a recording right away, I'm already judging. It's like, I have that thing, you know, we're human. And, um, and if I do wait a day or so, I'm often surprised. And it's like, oh, that, that's better than I thought, you know, I mean, so it, yeah. Um, I think it, it, it is a piece of it that's important too, is you should record yourself as well. And, you know, we should throw that on the pile as far as playing with people that are better than you, finding ways to challenge yourself and being honest. Of course, recording yourself is, is great that way. Um, Vin, you are being quiet. Well, I'm happy. It's, 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 it's your turn, Vin. Okay. You've got some questions for Beth. <laughs> Well, I just wanted to correct you both because I've heard Beth say that she's taught thousands of students and Greg repeated that. I'm going to say that that number is much, much higher. Uh, Greg, I don't know if I told you, but uh, her, her books were some of the foundational books that I was using, um, you know, back when I was just learning how to play. Um, so that number is well into the tens and if not hundreds of thousands. I've, all my friends wow. had the books, so they were that important. Wow. That's, that's so that's amazing. your impact is wow. certainly more than just the ones that were in the room with you teaching. Um, just want to touch, you know, now being a female in a very heavily male dominated space, I was reading, um, there was a Guitar Girl magazine interview you, you did. I don't remember how long ago it was, but you said that um, there was, there's only like there's only been a few female guitar instructors. I know it was you, Jennifer Batten, and it hasn't really changed much like uh, in the time that you've been there. It, um, is that still true? And why do you think that is? Like, why is it such a female or such a male dominated thing? And the maybe like female teachers are slow to come into the space. Of course, Cheryl Bailey and 
Kim Perlack at Berkeley and Sharon Isbin are, you know, heads at Juilliard and Berkeley. But is that changing? Do you think? Are you seeing more female students in the guitar program? And if not, what can be done to make that happen? Let number one, let's make that happen. Okay. So yeah, okay. Um, so we can agree. And um you know, you, you mentioned about the women that are um, leading these programs. And I think, you know, a, a couple of years ago, I wrote uh, an article and did several interviews about that very topic, which I found to be hugely um, encouraging and enlightening that elite guitar programs in the United States, several of them are being run by women, which is fantastic. And that's a huge sea change that never happened in history before. Um, as far as going through the you know, the faculty levels and the student levels, I think there, there are probably at Berkeley, there's more women teaching uh, guitar there than there used to be. I think I can say that with some small authority, um, not so at GIT. Um, and I, I can't obviously talk about any other institutions or, you know, around the world or in the United States, whether there's more women enrolled or not. I can only, only tell you what I know firsthand. Uh, here in LA, but yeah, it's been fairly static. It stayed about the same percentage um, female students and, and, you know, guitar is a disreputable instrument. I think you can both agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, women don't want anything to do with it. No, I, I, I really, um, I have found myself being very inspired by some absolutely mind-blowing female guitar players that are uh, out there playing, you know, and doing gigs, and they're they're really just, in, just, you know, inspiring is the word that just keeps you know percolating for me. Really great players um, that are are making a name for themselves. As far as academia, you know, maybe they're out there doing the gigs. They're doing that, and maybe the as far as becoming teachers um you know it's not being channeled that way i can't address with the students you know why it hasn't been a huge groundswell except to say that maybe online learning maybe other forms of learning have actually increased the number of women who are excelling at guitar but it's not a measurable statistical piece of data that we can point at um in traditional brick and mortar higher education, you know, maybe that for whatever reason, it just sort of stays at the level stays at. I've been mystified, you know, when I was a department chair, I thought I was going to be throwing open the doors, you know, like, follow me. <laughs> I can do it. Um, you can too. And, and I think there has been some of that, but, but I think it's a very uh, multi-layered answer to a big question. And one I'm invested in, you know, I, I don't, to be quite blunt with you, actually, then, you know, I, I don't spend much time at all thinking about being a, a female guitar player versus just being a guitar player. And I know that's a that's a fairly obvious thing to say, but it's true. I have much more important things to do. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of conversation about this topic and it has been for a long time and I've had lots and lots of opportunities to talk about it. But at the end of the day, um, you know, I can only as a good teacher. Um, or, or member of the music community, I can really only 
uh, lead by example. Um, I, I really feel like that's where the, the most power is and hopefully support dialogues, you know, people that do want to talk about it, um, that I can share whatever I can, you know, with my experience and continue to see things move forward uh, generationally. But, um, you know, I don't know the answer for why it isn't moving faster. I really want it to move faster. Um, you know, I want to personify excellence. I want to personify diligence. I want to pers personify um, possibility, you know, for men and women, you know, male and female. I want everyone to see like, look, you can do this. And that it's not, my message isn't really tailored for any one person. Um, but ultimately I feel encouraged. You know, I, I like seeing that there's just so many players that incredible, maybe more infusion than straight ahead jazz, but you know, I could name names and you know, you can find them for yourself online. And uh, I, I'm meeting young women, particularly, I mean, there's, I won't name in any names, but there's a young female student, you know, that came out of MI that is a fantastic jazz player. That's like maybe going to be an amazing world-class jazz player. It's encouraging to me. So um, maybe it's quality, not quantity. Hard to say, but uh, I'd, I'd like to, I'd like, you know, my, my, my last closing thought on this, and I've said this a few times, is that I think if we had just, you know, 100 or maybe it'll be 500 great female jazz guitar players on the face of planet Earth, we'd instantaneously have world peace. We just like all happen because <laughs> they're walking the earth. So it's a big deal, you know, but uh, I, I really do want to see it happen. And, um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a big question. So thanks for asking that one. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Totally. Okay. It's uh well, you know, you, you're really holding the beacon for female guitarists worldwide there, Beth. So, um, you know, yeah, a uh, big call to arms for all you women guitar players out there. Time to, T time to put yourself out there and um and yeah no it's a uh, very inspirational uh something um a little bit lighter here i noticed on your facebook page that you had just recently had a chance to play barney kessel's es350 can you tell us how that came about um that was a an amazing experience um i don't know if you're familiar with uh bruce foreman uh fantastic oh, yeah. jazz guitar player here on the west coast yeah great player um, you know, he is really the um, keeper of Barney's guitar. And, uh, you know, he had played with Barney for a number of years and is a, a, an extraordinary purveyor of um, all things Barney. He can really play that style. And he recorded that fantastic album, The Pole Winners, that was based on the Barney Kessel trio, you know, pole winner albums and has done a lot to carry the torch to, to really revive Barney and his playing. And, he, and he's using Barney's original guitar that was on so many important recordings. So what's fantastic about Bruce Foreman and that guitar is it's not something that's under glass. I mean, he's taking it out and playing it in you know every context and every gig, uh, which I think is pretty extraordinary because when you have that sort of historic instrument. Most people would put it in the case and like keep it, you know, keep it at home and don't let it out. Um, and, but yeah, he uh, he came over, we just did some playing um, that day, a few days ago, and I got a chance to finally play it and uh, which was really special, just the mojo of it. And um, Bruce is kind of on a mission to put everybody's DNA into the guitar, possibly making a soup. <laughs> 
So it's like everybody's <laughs> stuff and their licks and the, you know, I'm putting notes in there and DNA and, um, but I, I love that openness, you know, that he's willing to do it because there are guitars out there. Like, uh, you know, I know where Joe Pass's guitar is and I know where Joe DiOrio's, you know, guitar is. And right now, you know, they generally are not really accessible to anyone. This is something that's super cool that Bruce is doing. And there may be more in the future of that. I, I, with that sort of thing, I hope, where actually historic instruments get out, you know, and tell their stories and have people, you know, who can play them and tell the stories and they, they can be part of the world again, um, as opposed to in someone's collection. So yeah, that was a great experience. I mean, the guitar was really interesting and it was of course full of cracks. It was all cracked all over and, uh, had had repairs that made kind of near the jack very heavy. I guess they'd put some kind of uh, pegs or I'm not even sure what, maybe chunks of metal. I don't know what they put in there. The thing's very bottom heavy. Uh, the neck felt great and the guitar played great. Played easier than most of the guitars I play every day. I was surprised. I expected it to be kind of like a, a baseball bat, but it played great. And uh, just, you know, as a guitar player to be able to just hold it in your lap, like that's enough. You know, so he should just take it on a petting tour. So everybody <laughs> could just... <laughs> oh, <laughs> Maybe there's funny. money in that, I don't know. But, but yeah, that was, that was a really special, very good experience. So thanks for asking that. I, I just had a quick idea on that. Uh, you, you could almost do a concert kind of like, it's almost like the guitars telling its story where you, where you play classic tunes by Barney Kessel on the guitar and you might have, you know, uh, pe people that have played with Barney give stories and stuff like that. It could be a really interesting concert. That one. You should check out. I mean, Bruce is kind of doing that. Actually, oh, okay. it's that good of an idea. And because he already released this album, the poll winners with what I didn't really fully fill in is that the other, uh, uh, players on that album, Ray Brown, and I'm having a Jazzheimer's moment. I can't remember the drummer on it now. I've forgotten. Uh, was it Shelly Mann? I'm not sure. I think so. Forgive me if I'm wrong. Those three uh, instruments, the drums, the upright bass and Barney's guitar all exist. And they were kept by the families, the, the bass and the drums, so that they were summoned. Those instruments were brought out of retirement and, um, and were played. All three instruments from the original Poll uh, Winners album were played on the new Poll Winners Barney Kessel album. So they were played um, again, which is super cool. And then wow. Bruce went out on tour and you know played these things, these tunes, and told Barney stories. And you know he's done this with something called the Red Guitar as well. That that he uses the guitar as sort of this metaphorical living being, like the Red Violin. If you saw that film. Um, had stories to tell because if you get right down to it really I think our instruments do hold stories we put them in there you know we're playing them all the time but certain special instruments obviously have lived history that that is unique and I think there's something very uh compelling about what you, what you mentioned Greg and you know finding these other instruments out there and having people you know, share it. And since we're talking about the world itself becoming more aware of jazz and educated, what a great way to be an ambassador. Like if our government sent cultural ambassadors out, you know, like a Barney Castle sort of cultural tour to, to really make it real. If you've ever been in, in Italy, for example, I think in Florence, I'm not sure if it's the Uffizi Museum, but there's paintings of 
um, very, very beautiful Renaissance instruments in the museum. And the way the display, the, uh, the exhibition is, is that the actual instruments are right there too, with the painting of the people playing them, with oh, the real nice. instruments. It's, it's kind of stupefying. Yeah, it's, powerful. You're looking at a, it's powerful. Yeah, you know, 400, 500 year old instrument. And then there's the picture of the person painting, play, painted, playing it. Um, you know, that's a sort of different variation on the same idea, but um, it really is impactful. So that, but again, just being able to, to have, have it not be rarefied and in a museum, like I'm talking about, but to have the, have the instrument, you know, here in my lap, amazing. And I know John Paisano, who's in the West Coast too, used to do that with Joe Pass's guitar. He used to invite students over to his house, come and play Joe Pass's guitar. I mean, what a cool thing. So I would love, you know, more of that. And, um, you know, maybe as our elder statesmen and women of, of jazz, you know, reach the point in life where they're not able to play anymore, that they'll consider doing that with their instruments, actually putting them into the domain where they can be shared. I mean, that's an interesting, very almost radical idea for some people who probably would just, you know, give it to their children or sell it or whatever. But, but I think, you know, like Vin, you asked about that. Wouldn't you be excited to play that guitar? Like play Barney's guitar? Or Absolutely. Absolutely. Wes's guitar or Joe's guitar? Oh, I mean, I, who wouldn't, you know? I mean, I think it's just the holy grail sort of, yeah, let's do it. So it's, it's a cool thing. Yeah, it was a great day. Uh, I've got one more question for you, Beth. Um, in terms of the future of, of jazz in general or jazz guitar specifically where where do you see the style going from from here you know obviously it underwent a big metamorphosis since it's uh jazz began but but where where do you see the future of jazz and its audience oh that's easy (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah i i think that it's just a it's a very much uh, you know it's a moving target of course there's so many um pieces in flux as far as the way jazz education and guitar education has changed and uh, you know i mean i'm alluding to online learning to a large extent like what's happening all over the planet and diversification of knowledge that didn't reach areas where it, it you know had not before i certainly have a lot of friends now that I didn't have three or four years ago because of social media and being online that are all over the world um, that are just getting turned on to Hank Mobley or uh, Wes or Grant Green or, you know, that, that they're, to them it's new, like in other parts of the world, the globalization factor, which I find super exciting. Um, the world itself is going through what the world's going through. So nobody can point a finger at, at that equation. But I think that a, a net positive is that there is a tremendous wealth of um, information reaching people that it never really reached before. And um, I find it encouraging. And it's our job to communicate that history um, and the lineage, you know, as I had mentioned before about it jazz, the tradition being, uh, you know, a language, being a vocabulary, being oral, being in the records, being a, this historic lineage that needs to have preservation. It needs to have 
people that are champions, you know, that are teachers, that are taking it around the world, that there is cultural diplomacy that way, that there is internet diplomacy, for lack of a better word. I think I made that up, and that doesn't—it's not even that's an oxymoron. Like that doesn't exist. <laughs> I don't think it really exists. But but I think that um, you know maybe there's some answer, you know, that is a is positive that that larger community grows even larger because we're really lucky. I mean, we get to listen to the music we love, we get to play it, we get to learn it and develop our own voices. And, you know, in our micro cosmic way, you know, we're certainly part of something much bigger and it's important and the world needs us. Like every day I get to play the guitar, I feel really privileged, you know, I'm really lucky and I want to share that opportunity and that experience with more people. And so that's where I sort of see the salvation now, you know, or the future. I, I don't know what people will do with it. It's interesting. You know, I've had a chance to study a bit with uh, um, some very innovative jazz guitar players who are very outside the regular run of the mill, straight ahead types. Um, and I'm learning things that's like, oh, I didn't know that was possible, you know? And so I, if I'm learning, that there's new opportunities and ways to evolve the instrument just for myself as a player. I'm fascinated. It's like, what's somebody on the other side of the planet, you know, going to do with it that maybe doesn't have the infrastructure that I had, you know, or, uh, you know, the influences are different. So that's my, my, my thought. That's sort of where I see it's an optimistic thing. Um, I'm not, uh, I'm not negative about it all. You know, I, I, I constantly seeing young people who are excited and are, and are digging in. Um, so I, I feel very encouraged. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's not, it's not a dark thing at all. Um, I don't know. How do you feel about it? You encouraged? Uh, yeah, I definitely, uh, I think, um, it's a bit like, you know, the, um, medicine or science, you know, it seems like things are almost accelerating. Uh, in those fields because of the potential for cross, cross collaboration and information sharing as you're saying across the world uh, it's much much easier for people to access information I, I remember when I was a kid uh, there was um, uh, that I only had I had my teacher who was fantastic and, but I only had like two guitar books and I had like three albums or something like that. But but these days, like any direction you want to go musically, um, uh, you know, you can find uh, either inspiration uh, very easily and for very cheaply as well, or you can find someone that specializes in that. So I think, uh, as you say, there is a double-edged sword there, as you mentioned earlier, with the, the whole people just getting very scattered in their learning and sort of like just skimming over material rather than having the discipline that sort of martial arts style discipline to really dive in deep and to explore something in detail but i think uh that there if you use it well that then that this is potentially one of the most leveraged times in history to to study things like music i i, I couldn't agree more and i and i echo your sentiment about going deep not wide you know don't do a survey, you know, focus is really, really important and, and that it's all there, you know, a hundred times over, you know, everything you could ever want and more. Um, but that points back to the value of, I think, having a good teacher, having a human teacher, <laughs> having the connectivity um, really with someone that can help at least, like I mentioned before, put you on that raft before you get pushed out to sea. Um, and then you can discover whatever you want to discover. But because um, 
Yeah, there's a, there is a factor of, you know, I've seen it in GIT students where they come in and they've learned off of YouTube. And so they have a very um, sort of hyphenated skill set that they're really good at certain things, but there's no context to it at all. You know, they don't know how to function in a band or they don't really, you know, there's a lot of pieces that they're missing. So it is a very interesting sort of, um, you know, siloed approach in certain cases, but you really do still need to have someone great to study with. And I think, you know, if you live somewhere very far away, there are certainly online resources like what you're doing, or, you know, I'm a fan of Truefire. I think they're very diverse and they have a lot of great content and, uh, you know, do that very well. That's one of the things on my desk. It's like I've had for a while, like to do some uh, courses for them. I have a book project that's sitting here as well for me to, to get at. And I take these things very seriously because of that impact in the world. You know, I don't want to do it kind of halfway. I, I really want to do my very best. So um, that's probably something I'm going to look at in the beginning of next year as far as projects and so forth. But I, I, I do um, appreciate the work that you guys do. You have a very large following. And so I hope, I hope a couple of the words, you know, that, that we've shared, you know, make some kind of difference and ultimately just encourage people out there to get in the game. Don't be afraid, you know, just be a part of a community if you can. And if you're not, you know, a community of one is great too. I mean, a lot of, you know, our icons started, they were just by themselves, you know, maybe they had a, a record that they wore out. Um, there's no one, you know, codified way that this is the way to become a jazz guitar player. There's a thousand ways to become a jazz guitar player. But ultimately, you know, it's the, the people that you meet, the people you play with, the community that you get to be a part of, this family, for lack of a better word, that's pretty extraordinary. You know, it is probably one of the best parts when I travel, I was just in New York and meeting so many guitar players there or, you know, wherever I go, um, there's just sort of this brotherhood and sisterhood that's amazing. And anyone from, you know, any part of the world. And so, um, you know, I really appreciate the, the resources that you guys provide and there's room for more. You know, there's, there, there's Fret Dojo, one, two, three, four, 1,000. You know, there's like <laughs> a lot of dojos are needed. And I think, um, you know, that's, that's the beautiful part of all of it is there's room for everyone and every single uh, version of jazz guitar player that's out there works. It works, you know, so that we don't have to compare ourselves at all. I mean, that's that waste of time thing. I think it's really... Um, wonderful to see some of your guests like Barry Green or Cheryl Bailey or, or, or Jimmy Bruno. You know, they're all incredibly talented, great players, but absolutely found their own ways to, you know, build up their voice and uh, how they express it. And, and that's where it really becomes like a, a gem, you know, when someone's willing to, to carry it through all the way, you know, and, and uh, really evolve to that high level. It's very inspiring. So um, I hope I can just encourage someone out there, you know, to keep going, because that's, you know, the very simple thing is just don't quit. Just never quit, never quit, and you'll get there. And it's that simple. All the rest of it, you know, just enjoy yourself along the way. Um, and I often see Wes Montgomery and the, all of his joy and, you know, what he 
embodied in the way that he played. You know, what a wonderful example. There's a lot of great examples. There's so many people inspiring out there. So, um, you know, I hope I can someday, like I do in airports sometimes, meet one of your Fret Dojo people out in the world, out in the wild. It's, yeah. it's funny, I get people tapping me. I bet let be in Japan. And so it's like, oh, Pesan, hi, I was, you know, I got your book or I put your student. And it, nothing delights me more. You know, it's it's really a fantastic thing. So um, anyway, future of the guitar. Yeah, it's it's the world, you know, I hope. I hope so. Jazz guitar, well, so, I should say not. Thank you. guitar. Thank you, Beth. And um, yeah, for all for all of you Fret Dojo fans out there, make sure you wear your t-shirts out and about so that I, I know you're a Fret Dojo <laughs> fan when I come and see you. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it's it's been absolutely wonderful today, um, Beth. Uh, it's it's been really amazing hearing your words of wisdom on the guitar. Uh, it's it's such a privilege to have someone that's uh, uh, had such a long history of performance, but also teaching. Uh, tell us before we wrap up, where, where do you regularly perform in the States? Uh, where, where, where can people um, kind of sit in and listen to listen to your amazing playing? Oh, thank you. You know, it's so funny. I, I, this year seemed to have played more outside of where I live, outside of town than in LA. Like it's sort of a running joke that I never play in LA. I live in LA. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, you know, I've been all over the place this last year. Um, I think for this, the, the rest of this year, it's kind of, you know, chilling out. And then I have stuff in the works for possibly going to Italy next year and in the Pacific Northwest near Seattle um, and a few other things that are um, getting settled that I can't really talk about. So again, not in LA. So I guess uh, if we talk about being diligent, I should probably fix that little pothole in my playing and, and do some local gigs. Um, but yeah, I, I get great invitations to like go out and, you know, uh, play interesting places. Um, so stay tuned is probably what I'd say. I'm on social media. You can find me pretty easily. I'll put stuff out there, uh, you know, little private things here and there, little quiet gigs, but yeah, I got to play more out in LA and, um, and uh, be findable as they say, searchable, Google, Google me. Um, but but yeah, stay tuned next year because I do have some really great things coming up for sure. I'm excited. All right. So it's been a wonderful session with Beth Marlis today. It's been absolutely fantastic having you on the show today, Beth. So you can find Beth at bethmarlis.com online or on socials. And yeah, we'd love to have you back again on the show. Great. You guys, thanks so much for having me here. It's been a blast. Um, great meeting you and, and thanks for doing this. And for more jazz guitar lessons, tips, and free stuff, visit www.fretdojo.com.